I'm Emily. And I'm Kay. And this is Second Lead Syndrome. A podcast homage to our K-pop culture side pieces. Today, we are going to talk about a little show called American Hustle Life, and it's a show that we have wanted to talk about, I think, for quite some time. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, it is a show starring BTS um, a year after their debut in 2013. So it came out in 2014, and it was a variety show in which the group traveled to L.A. to basically get a crash course and become more, I guess, well-versed or kind of gain a stronger skill set and understanding of hip-hop in relation to making the music that they make. Um, Yeah, do you have anything else to add, Kay, about American Hustle Life? I mean, I think we're going to get into it, but it's just it's fascinating to me that BTS was debuted as a hip hop group. And it has, you know, several of the members were involved in underground hip hop prior to getting involved in the idol industry. But American Hustle Life shows the ways in which hip hop in Korea is so wildly different from hip-hop in the U.S. and even, I mean, in a regional sense, but also in a temporal sense, like the hip-hop of the 2000s is so different from the hip-hop of the 80s and 90s. Um, So I think American Hustle Life gives a really good um, sort of bird's-eye view of how hip-hop has changed and how it's different um, in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's particularly interesting about it from the standpoint of us being anthropologists and watching the show through an anthropologist's eyes is that it is a show that really epitomizes a particular kind of intercultural contact. Exactly. Um, so it's this way in which BTS is encountering American hip hop and particularly the people that they're coming across are both contemporary sort of producers of hip hop, but then also the sort of nineties West coast OG kind of cohort, or at least a couple representatives of that cohort. So it's interesting because exactly what you were saying about looking at hip hop in its different eras um, and kind of, how BTS encounters those, makes sense of them, um, and then, you know, potentially down the line incorporates that into the ways that they're making their own music um, and perform and their performance, how that develops. Um, so, yeah, I think those are really interesting aspects of the show and why one reason why we wanted to cover it, um, because I think as anthropologists, we think about sort of what does it mean to have intercultural contact? I mean, I think we could definitely unpack that term or even critique it um, from not just an anthropological perspective, but many other, you know, um, I think social theoretical perspectives, you know, that that idea of intercultural contact um, 
inherently assume sort of a purity on both sides that, you know, we'd probably want to trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think like, yeah, we'll talk more about it, but hip hop studies too would trouble that in the sense that there's this sort of imagination of a global hip hop nation, which we'll talk more about. Um, but you know, are these really two different cultures or are they revealed to be two different cultures when they conceived of themselves as being this or sharing something like sharing a culture? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, anthropology, you know, to go back to these earlier conversations we were having about like, well, what is anthropology? Um, you know, the particular subfield that I think where a lot of our work intersects or, or dwells um, is in this realm of cultural anthropology and this idea of what does culture mean or what does what does difference mean and what does it what does it look like when people connect across difference or even join together in a kind of common connection like what are the things that that um, cement those things or or create certain dynamics of kind of social contact in different kinds of ways I think that's that's broadly you know, if you're trying to wrap your head around what the heck is anthropology, um, I think that that's one of the key questions that anthropologists are always asking, no matter what context they're studying. Um, yeah. And so from that standpoint, really, like American Hustle Life is a super interesting case of thinking through, I think, all of these all of these kinds of questions in an anthropological way. Um, I guess the other thing I, I wanted to ask about is like, in terms of how we wanted to cover it um, and this question of, like, why did we want to cover it, what what are your thoughts on that, Kay? I think we wanted to take an episode-by-episode approach to kind of deconstruct the interactions that we're seeing and to think about what are the potentials in these interactions and what actually happened, how do things actually play out, where might there be some room or or ideas for other kinds of learning to take place. Um, and I think that's especially important for fans to think about, like as we're trying to develop ourselves as critical consumers of entertainment, um, what can we learn and what can we take away? And when we see missed opportunities, how do we carry that into our own lives in ways that are productive? But also, I mean, I think it's just like part of the reason we wanted to do it as well is that um, BTS is in a very different place now as artists. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. <laughs> sure. Well, BTS has just exploded. Like, it's it's incredible to me to see a group that is not from one of the big three companies, like, being so incredibly popular. Like, there's the the youtube views the the engagement online is like off the charts and it's to a point where you know i'm sure any like east asian country that you would visit people would know of bts but like also you know you just posted this video on my facebook wall of these guys from nigeria doing a cover dance of fire like this is this is on a whole other level yeah, absolutely. So like so I think like BTS is in the public sphere in a way that few other groups are or have been in a long time and I think that 
it's really important for us to look at their trajectory. Like, what role did American Hustle Life play in making them the artists that they now are? And say, for example, enabling someone like Rapmon not only to collaborate with Warren G, which was earlier than I think their big turning point um, breakthrough, but then like subsequently this collaboration he did with Wale that, you know, I think his level of consciousness and engagement with hip hop is different. And I, you know, we can we can unpack how much of American Hustle Life was instrumental in that and how much it was just sort of Rapmon's personal development. Um, but I don't know that he would have been able to make that record with Wale in the same way, um, you know, a year after his debut, you know. Um, I think that's a question, you know, um, that that I've definitely asked myself when I saw that collaboration uh, go live. It was It was really like, yeah, wanting to kind of dissect and understand how they've evolved as a group and because of the high visibility. Um, I think it's a particularly interesting study um, of how K-pop and hip-hop kind of interface with each other as well. Like what what does that relationship look like? Um, because BTS is so lauded for their art, you know, the, their artistry in a sense, um, and and you know there's there's supposed kind of um, yeah facility with hip hop as a genre um, arguably you know yeah yeah um, and I guess the other thing is you know we could talk about the fact that nobody really did a thorough episode by episode recap of the show like. Which is which is also strange to me. I mean, someone can tweet us or DM us or email us a link if, in fact, someone has already done this to the level at which we, uh, you know, we're hoping to engage with. But I has of yet had not found any sort of, um, you know, content out there that really unpacked the show and all these ways in which we were seeing these kinds of, you know, intercultural tensions or, you know, issues around um, what hip hop means in the in the K-pop realm um, and, and even these questions of vice versa. You know, I mean, I think the most substantive thing I saw out there really was an interview with one of the hip hop mentors in the show. And even that, you know, was his own takeaway from it. It wasn't like a deep dive into sort of the larger social implications of kind of what was going on um, nearly as much, you know. I mean, he was self-reflexive to a certain extent, and we'll definitely post that interview. I think it was on Soompi. And it's a good interview, but yeah, I mean, there really wasn't sort of a play-by-play analysis of it, to, to my satisfaction at least, um, which again is surprising given the kind of juggernaut of the BTS army, you know. <laughs> Um, and, 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 and that's really part of it too, is, you know, like with all of the armies out there, we kind of want to give you guys a gift of some deep dive analysis into the thing that you love, if that's not already there, you know? (laughs) And I think there's something just like so rich about going back to stuff that happened like several years ago, because you have the benefit of hindsight and now, you know, you can see the ways in which 
your you know your fave has like grown and changed since that moment and like there's so much more um you have so much more information and like material to with which to interpret everything that you're seeing yeah I mean and that's one of the great things actually about kind of the broader ethos of um k-pop fandom I think is is that when you become a fan of, of a group or a particular idol, I think part of, um, you know, one of the one of the things that people, I think, really latch on to when they when they think about their fave or they're developing a bias is that kind of trajectory, like how how they've changed. You know, um, I do think that that's definitely an element. OK, well, I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about just so we kind of couch um, the conversation in a little bit of anthropological theory, because that is part of, I think, our hopefully our regular kind of formatting, is I thought we could talk a little bit about indexicality and ways ways in which uh, you can watch American Hustle Life and see lots of different indices um, of hip-hop. Like, what are indices of hip-hop? So, like, you know, we can use the example of, like, lowriders or chains or snapbacks. Like, I think these are all indices of hip-hop. Um, but I think as the linguistic anthropologist or the one who specializes in that probably more, even more than, than I do, um, maybe you could tell our listeners what indexicality is. <laughs> sure. I mean... I love indexicality, and I think it's the greatest concept in the world. But some people find it really difficult. Um, And it's actually, I'm like, it's not that difficult, but it's really useful. So the idea of indexicality is that there are certain things, like, so there are certain things in the world that represent other things. Like a stop sign, for example. You see a red octagon, and you know that sign represents stop. And that's just because we've all agreed on it. It's not that there's anything about a red octagon-shaped sign that implies that you come to a stop. It's just that we've all agreed that that's what it is. But an index, by contrast, is something that represents something else, like that by pointing to it. So like you were saying, like there are certain things that, you know, you can see like chains, like someone wearing gold chains, and that points you to a certain culture, a certain way of speaking, um, and, you know, kinds of consumption. So in that sense, like a chain is an index for hip hop. Um, And we, again, this is something else that we'll talk more about later, but like, when V says to Coolio in, I think, episode two, when he says turn up, he's using turn up as an index to say to Coolio, like, listen, we have some shared kind of something and I'm pointing to that thing that we share, which is my perception of hip hop culture. And what's fascinating about that, and we'll talk more about it later, is that Coolio does not agree and he doesn't he doesn't see V is indexing the same thing as, like, he thinks hip-hop culture is. Um, so, but yeah. So I think, like, throughout the show, there are all these visual and audio indexes in addition to how people talk 
um, that point to the ways that they're the different ways that they're conceiving of what hip hop is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why, like, you know, when I was thinking about, oh, what should we talk about in episode one? I think episode one is like, you know, it doesn't have as much of this kind of social commentary or, you know, sociopolitical, I think, um, underpinning that some of the later episodes have. But what it does have is a kind of like, these are the vocabularies, like this is the lexicon um, that we're working with. And and like, I just think indexicality is such a important concept for, yeah, understanding like how all these all these different things that point to hip hop are operating like and and the dispute the dispute over something's indexicality like there's just all these disputes about whether or not something and i think that example of like v and coolio and their interaction is totally about yeah exactly what you said it's a debate about the indexicality of saying turn up and and in particular, maybe not even the words turn up, but like how V says it. Like Right. It's not about the meaning of turn up. Like it's not about whether V wanted to party and Cleo didn't want to party. It's about what those words are pointing to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe you could just give a few more examples of indexicality um more broadly just to give people like more time to let that marinate. Cause I think indexicality is one of those things that for us, we've kind of taken for granted because we talk so much about these terms, but yeah, like what are some other examples of like indexicality? Sure. Well, I think there's a lot of um, visual indexicality at the beginning of the show when they're um, trying to orient the, the audience to what they're trying to do in the show so, for example, like you see them on the plane um, and you're meant to understand that like they're all traveling really far from home. And this is like a journey of a literal and metaphorical type. Right. And the airplane is an index for taking a journey um, when they get to Los Angeles. You know, you see these little like flashes of like the skyline and like the palm trees and stuff. Those are all indexes that are meant to orient you to. A certain way of thinking about this particular city and this particular space and place was interesting to me about like that initial setup in Los Angeles. And this happens in other shows, too. Like if you watch um, the Go series with I think they do it with different artists. But like, um, you know, you see these like little flashes of like landmarks around whatever city they're visiting. And that's an index to the audience that like, OK, we're in Chicago and like it calls out all the things that you think you know about Chicago, which may or may not be true. But it's it's like it's like sending you a message with just that that one small visual clip, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I you know, whenever I try to like remember what indexicality is, like if it wasn't coming to me naturally when I was like first kind of getting used to the kind of linguistic anthropology bag of concepts. Um, I always think of the example where everyone says like smoke indexes fire. So it's like that's like a really classic example when people kind of try to explain indexicality. It's like, well, you see the smoke and that points to the fact that there's a fire. 
But whether or not the fire is actually there is like a completely different issue. Like the smoke could have just materialized, but the fire's not there anymore or it never was there, you know, in the in the in the way that we talk about smoke and mirrors, you know, it's like it it points to the idea, but it doesn't actually mean that the idea is there. So to go back to that example of like V and Coolio, it's like V thinks that it's indexing it. It's indexing hip hop. But for Coolio, it's like that's not there. So it's it's that that idea that indexicality doesn't mean that the thing is like actually there. It's the implication of like pointing to it. Right. And it's and also like pointing to like a larger idea than so for example like an, uh, not to bring in too much current events but like we, we hear all these stories about kids at schools saying to bully other kids saying build the wall and they don't mean they actually well I mean they do but like the sentence build the wall is not referential it's not talking about like we're gonna build a wall right here on this playground it's indexing a whole other conversation that's happening in American politics it's pointing to a discourse about exclusion and um, people's beliefs about immigration and all that kind of thing mm-hmm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this kind of just like takes us right into, yeah, recapping episode one, because like that example that you're pointing out about, you know, L.A., what are the what are the indices of like L.A. Um, or California more broadly? And I would argue like as someone from San Francisco and very proudly so that the indices of San Francisco and the indices of LA are very different. Um, And like how those get used to index California are also kind of interesting. Well, yeah. And for like, for Korean audiences, you're not just indexing LA, you're indexing America. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And it's like, also how hip hop can sometimes serve as an indices, like as indices for like certain kinds of, like America notions of America you know like I think it's it's the indexicality is like functioning on multiple levels um yeah but it's a really useful way to think about like the relationship between something that you see and like what it means um and whether or not it's a shared meaning um yeah but it opens up with like yeah them taking this plane and then they land in LA and then it's exactly what you're saying it's like palm trees beaches it says something like oh they're living the California dream and then they like go to a game at Dodger Stadium which seems to be totally unrelated to the actual reason that they're there (laughs) yeah and yet that's what they like want to set you up thinking is like this is California and then uh we transition to them like I think they're sitting in the parking lot in the van and it's at night, right? And they think that they're just there for like a rest stop. And then like basically what happens for those of you who like haven't watched the episode in a while or haven't yet watched it, it's like they basically get quote unquote like kidnapped. (laughs) This was so troubling to me because it plays into all these nasty stereotypes and you can see on the members' faces like – whether or not this is like a genuine reaction, like I, th- I mean, I think there's some debate about 
the degree to which these kinds of shows are scripted. But even if they're acting surprised and terrified, it's still offensive. Like, and the the fact that it calls for, like, a bunch of black guys to just, like, get into a car, like, it's very troubling. <laughs> it's in a, you know, in a obviously racial way, like... Yes, yes. I mean, it plays into, like, the whole, I mean, just all those tropes. And the thing to me that, like, I think I want to revisit over and over again, like, in terms of analyzing this series is what were the the American and particularly the black participants of this show, like, where, like, what was their reflexivity? What was their complicity in in all of this because one of the things that I thought was so missing from that interview with Tony Jones one of the mentors was this question of like how how like blackness and particularly like black American identity is represented and how like BTS understands that because like I again, I wonder about sort of like how that played out in the show versus, you know, a few years down the line, Rapmon being able to like trade verses with Wale, who's talking about police brutality and the whole way in which like black men wearing hoodies are mistaken as criminals and pay with their lives. Like, you know, I mean, to me, it's just staggering that like those who participated in the show knowing that context, particularly in LA where there's, you know, a incredibly deep history of police brutality. Right. Um, like how they, how they like agreed to play into this trope. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, that's, that's what I want to know is like, did you think about that when you were participating? Like, that's what I want to ask those guys. Did they think about it? Like, and did they just think it was like, OK, or what, you know? You know, and, and there's some it's possible they were like, oh, yeah, this will just be a funny prank. But it it might be something that like when you look at it, the way that it's presented to us, then you might see like, oh, there's some really uncomfortable racial politics happening here. So it may be that they didn't know. And maybe that like if they were to watch it, they would have different thoughts and say like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this or this doesn't look good. Yeah, because like arguably, you know, if you were like participating in it, you could actually like feel like it was funny and stealthy, like, you know, like a like a prank, like a fraternity initiation prank or something, because that's like the other tone that I got from it was like, you know, if they weren't simulating or preying upon sort of those tropes of fear, um, they were also kind of like, yeah, like buying into the whole like hazing sort of mentality, which, you know, I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about like toxic masculinity and hazing, but like. It's also like a fascinating and troubling way to start off this sort of cross-cultural encounter, right? The BTS members are already out of place, right? They don't speak English well, except for Ratman, and they don't have the knowledge that they would need to navigate the world of Los Angeles effectively like if and you know even you you can see in later episodes like even normal interactions take on very different colors and shapes from like 
those of us who are native to this culture, right? Like, and when I say normal interactions, I mean normal to me, right? <laughs> like, and like, it's the same, like, it would be the same thing for me. Like, if I were to be in Korea, like, I would be out of place um, and nothing would be normal to me. But I just think it's fascinating that instead of opening with these normal encounter, like, normal, quote unquote, encounters that are relatively safe and, but that do at the same time expose, you know, ignorance and, um, and show people like show the process of cross-cultural learning instead of going with that approach they went for this really jarring deeply uncomfortable kind of encounter yeah yeah and I think you know part of it is the kind of like reality tv element of it you know that like variety shows are like meant or not always meant to but like you know I think that that from the variety that I have watched, I mean, yeah, it's often these ways in which people like love to sensationalize it, you know, and make things kind of in that like, I mean, there's definitely a reality show trope of the like boot camp model, you know, whether it's whether it's like the biggest loser or, you know, running man or something like that. There's there is this kind of like boot campy model that you can use to structure a reality show and I think there are definitely elements of that in this I don't know like I just wonder who came up with it I mean and, and this is the thing that I think throughout the show we want to flag for people is just how bereft it is of the deeper context of that particular part of Los Angeles where they're doing most of the show and like the context the social context and the history that they're operating in. Because aside from a few mentions of hip hop history, more generally, um, and the sort of like, his, I don't know if you want to call them historical figures, um, but like, yeah, like guys like Coolio and Warren G who've like lived the history of hip hop, like, but they don't even flag for BTS that deeper social context. Or they do, but it's in very oblique ways, right? Like when, we'll get to that later, but when Warren G takes them to his neighborhood, right? And there's something really valuable about experiencing space and place like that. But on the other hand, there's so much that cannot be conveyed as well. I mean, and I think that's like, that initial encounter also, just the ramifications of it, not only for BTS, and how they're experiencing everything, but like the viewers. And to me, what was shocking was like what viewer responses I did read or what commentary I did read did not broach the sort of outrageousness of the initial encounter. Like, I don't know. Did you read anything that like did a takedown of that? I mean, this is why we're here talking about it because like nobody did a takedown of it. Like, why didn't anyone do a takedown of that. Like, that's just crazy to me because it was, like, one of the first things that, like, I noticed and responded to when I was, like, watching it all go down, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it is that we're, for various reasons, now sensitized to that sort of thing, and that's the framework that we're in. Which is not not to give anyone excuses, but... To say, like, to us, it stands out and it's obvious immediately. It's, like, immediately uncomfortable. 
But I don't know. I mean, I think it's also, yeah, like, I think I think it was like they were less reflexive because it was supposedly primarily for a Korean audience. Like, in that way, like, I also kind of think, like, yeah, the ways, I mean, and, and it gets into a larger conversation about how, say, like, blackness or America is understood in Korea, you know? Like, I think... I think it reveals a lot about that, even if we've never lived in Korea, right? Like, I think there's ways in which, like, you can glean from the... If you're paying attention as much to their media landscape as we are, you know, like, or at least the pop culture media landscape, within that realm, yeah, the representation is... It's it's got a lot of problems, you know? And I think that, that like, a lot of... A lot of fans who are woke, like, get that, you know, um, and are sensitive to it. But, yeah, for me, it's just crazy that, like, especially for newer fans of BTS who maybe haven't watched American Hustle Life, that, like, it'd be very well worth going back and looking at it to see that, like, you know, they're participating in this representation in a particular way. Because I think that's part of what we're doing is, like, holding bts accountable a little bit like we're having that discussion and how that because like i don't i don't know if we made it clear that we really love bts (laughs) in this conversation (laughs) well i think you just have to assume with us that like if we're if we're like yeah i'm like we we criticize the things that we love right if we love it there's probably going to be critique involved Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But but yeah, like, I mean, I think part of the reason we want to spend so much time unpacking each episode is because I think that that discussion is integral to understanding more about who BTS is as a group and who they are as artists. Like, I, I think it's I think it's a great way to kind of understand another dimension of their of their work. Um and, and yeah, again, like to go back to the, it's like, we want to have the conversation that nobody else was having about it as our way of showing love, you know? <laughs> so yeah, after this like quote unquote kidnapping in which also like absurdly they, they have to like remove their shoes, right? Like, wasn't that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> or, or their socks? I, just, <laughs> I mean, I know it's supposed to be funny and it, it kind of is, but it's also just so cringeworthy, like... Why? But it goes back to what you were saying about like that, like hazing and toxic masculinity and just like doing these rituals that have no, there's no reason for them at all. And there's no explanation given either. It's just to intimidate and make them look ridiculous. Oh, totally. I mean, okay, so like, let's just gloss really quickly toxic masculinity because like, I don't I don't want to take that as a given either. Like, oh man, like this is the this is part of the conundrum but also like our mission, right? Is you know, we want to have like a rich vocabulary to address all the phenomena that we want to talk about with respect to Korean pop culture, but then like yeah, that toolkit, you kind of have to explain along the way what those tools are. Like I don't want to take that for granted. But yeah, like I mean, what's your kind of take on what toxic masculinity is? Well, <laughs> I mean, obviously there have been books, et cetera, written on this. And like, I'm sure um, Everyday Feminism has an awesome article 
explaining it. Um, so I will give my own poor off the cuff explanation now um, with excuses. Um, so toxic masculinity is this is is this whole like complex of ideas about what it means to be a man and what it means to be masculine, um, which involves like you can't show emotion. You need to um, be powerful and dominate other people. Like that's what power is, is dominating over others. Um, it's extremely competitive. Um, and and it's all about asserting your own like dominance over other people. So and like aggressive, like um, an aggressive ethos or like way of doing things. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, we'll put a link to like everyday feminism um, for everybody. But really, like everyday feminism is just a great site for getting a very readable, like accessible summary of a lot of I think these concepts that um, are useful for thinking about social justice, thinking about kind of pushing back against kind of, yeah, oppressive social forces. Um, It's a really is a really great, I think, and they just give really good concrete examples, like far better than, you know, we could, as you said, off the cuff provide, um, unless we've like prepared to gloss particular terms. Like, I think we were a little bit prepared, for example, to talk about indexicality, and they're not going to talk about indexicality on everyday feminism so much. So, not, like, I think they you should. Know. They should. They sh- <laughs> They should. They should. Let's get into the language thing. I mean, maybe I haven't looked at the site closely enough to find their mention of indexicality who knows sorry everyday feminism we love you but like yeah I think um I think it's a really useful site like go down that rabbit hole people if you have not because yeah it will just help you think about like how to deal with like microaggressions how to deal with racism how to deal with sexism you know all homophobia like all of the isms it's just like it's a really great, like, if you need the concepts and the vocabulary to think through those things, it's such a good site for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think toxic masculinity is like one of the kind of disturbing undercurrents of American hustle life as well, no doubt. <laughs> and it's interesting to see the ways that that there's like an intersection, right, between Korean masculinities and like the the way that the show portrays black American masculinities Um, And I guess we'll talk more about that as we go on. Thanks for listening to Second Lead Syndrome. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love to have your support so that we can post all our episodes online and keep them available. We've got some great thank yous like exclusive content on our website and shout outs in our episode credits. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash second lead syndrome. That's 2ND lead syndrome. And thanks again for listening. One of the things that I wonder and I know less about and and I welcome any armies who know more about this to kind of like tell us if they know more. But, you know, I think part of one of the things about like BTS's particular brand of hip hop is it's less connected to a particular kind of class struggle in say the way that certain certain strains of hip hop and particularly if you're talking about like gangster rap are very much a product of a particular kind of class struggle, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's, like, in some of their early work, there is some comments, like, like I'm thinking of No and, um, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on their, like, debut track. 
but it's it's there, but it's subtle. And I definitely don't hear it in their later work. Yeah. Yeah, because whenever anybody does a think piece on BTS, everybody, I think, the general consensus on what is BTS's message um, is very much a, like, what is the youth's concern? So it's it's very much about a generational kind of social commentary, if any, right? It's, it's very much about the spoils of youth or um, lost innocence, you know, those kinds of tropes. But yeah, there's very little, I think, class dimension to that um, as far as I've understood about their commentary. And I'm not saying that that's like something they have to do, but I do think like it changes sort of how they how they relate to hip hop. And you would know more about this than I would about like how how hip hop developed in relation to certain class struggles. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely less that's even less emphasized in the literature though, as far as I know, like because it's so um immediately about race and because America is fascinated with race, like that tends to be the dimension that's um that's most strongly, you know, brought out in the literature. Yeah. Yeah, but in in this, like, 50th wave of intersectionality, because let's be real, I mean, intersectionality's been around a long time, but I kind of feel like it's only really entered, like, the mainstream outside of the academy, like, you know, maybe in the past five years or something, and not even, like, it could maybe be, you know, and and I'd be interested to trace kind of, like, the currency of of the idea of intersectionality, Um because, yeah, it really has become a buzzword as of late, I think, um, particularly amongst activist circles that have now, like, gained a lot of public attention. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's surprising to me that the literature is not doing that as much. It's not to say that it doesn't, but it's it's not the primary focus. Obviously, like, class is implicated when we think about, like, how hip-hop developed in the Bronx and, like, the fact that, like, people's homes were basically, like, raised over, like, neighborhoods were destroyed, buildings were being burned for insurance money. Like, it's a whole... I mean, all of these things have to do with class, but they also have to do with race. And um, so that tends to be, like, the primary lens. And then you just kind of, you know, you just kind of snap the the class lens on top of that um, rather than the other way around. Yeah, and then it gets into this question of like, yeah, what what then do you, in as much as hip hop as a genre like connects to struggle, right? Like, and mm-hmm. I use that broadly, but like, in as much as the genre is concerned with struggle and how that is like related to its aesthetics, um, you know, I I think it brings up this question of like, and and this is partly something that I would like love to talk more with someone who is like grown up in in Korean society like what are the struggles and I think it perhaps is part of the calculus for like what explains BTS's successes right is that they are tapping into a particular struggle but it's one informed by a kind of generational concern or one of of age rather than sort of other social positionalities Mm -hmm. I think there's something to about 
idledom as a metaphor that's really appealing to a lot of people and this narrative that like you can struggle really 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 hard for many many years and eventually like you can make it um, speaks to the ways that people conceive of their struggle for social mobility as well um, and I think that you know you can hear that quite a bit in BTS's lyrics as well but yeah maybe we could just talk about like wrapping up kind of this last part of the episode which is uh they wake up in the morning right or they're rudely awakened in the morning <laughs> and it's uh the the mentors who who show up yeah um although it's interesting that like i don't think that they explicitly say like these are your mentors and this is how they're gonna help you like they're just like these three guys that show up and it just happens to be like the same guys that kidnapped them. Like maybe you could talk about it as like an educator. Like what is wrong oh, about no. <laughs> what is wrong? <laughs> well, like, I mean, because basically, right, like the whole point of this is not just like a boot campy thing, but it's also meant to be like, this is your crash course in authentic hip hop culture, right? Like that's kind of how they're framing it, right? They're framing it as a kind of training. So, like, from an educator's perspective, not even from an anthropological perspective, like, how do you read, like, what the pedagogical approach is or, like, the lesson plan or, you know, I'm just curious about, like, if you were to think about it as an educator, like, how would you read the setup? Yeah, I mean, oh, my goodness. It's, like, a little troubling. Um, First of all, crash courses are not a thing and should not be a thing because learning takes time and, like, you're literally – and this is what people – you know don't understand about learning is that you're literally changing the structure of your brain and that takes time and repetition and um, practice with good feedback and I think that's what's so surprising to me about like the way this show approached hip-hop is like when I think about if I were going to do an intensive course in hip-hop right I would expect to be in the studio several hours a day practicing on my own and then practicing in front of an expert and getting detailed feedback um which is something that bts like they're in the studio all the time and like they are in you know they have dance practice all the time that's how um that's a normal mode of learning for them and so i guess they wanted to well i don't know if they wanted to but like the show takes them out of that way of learning and puts them into something else that's like not according to the literature not super effective the other piece that's that's missing is time for reflection like honest reflection and i think the closest that they get to it i think the closest that they get to that kind of honest reflection is when they're writing the song for warren g about like their life stories Um, And that would have just been such an amazing opening activity to, like, set the scene for the entire experience. It's like reflect on yourself and where you're at and what you want to gain from being in this, like, a new place with new people and trying to master a new skill set. So anyway, that's, like, missed opportunity number 50,075. Like, you know, um... But yeah, so I guess the whole like this setup of like the hip hop school where they're going to be like born again as a true hip hop artist, like 
to me, that's, you know, it's just a bunch of words, <laughs> which is like, sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but that's that's how it looks to me. And like they didn't state their like actual objectives. Like by the end of this, you will be able to do X, Y, Z. Um, and they didn't, you know, say like these are your mentors and this is how they can help you. Um, yeah. So it just it felt it's it felt pedagogically empty to me and it's clear that like this is for entertainment and it's not really for like the growth of the members yeah yeah and I mean I think that that's what's like disappointing about it because I think like they're all smart enough or at least like oh absolutely you know they like I think I think they're reflective enough people like from what I know about them to have like an especially someone like Rapmon like reflect on that experience and I Rapmon gets no free passes um in these episodes <laughs> like because he's absolutely absolutely smart enough and thoughtful enough to take on yeah yeah and I mean I think that's why like I mean and we'll we'll talk about it again I think when we recap the second episode um but like yeah, the the point where Coolio like calls him out on like what is basically blackface without the makeup. Um and you know, again, we will talk about this a lot when we get to recap too. A lot. But yeah, Coolio doesn't let him off the hook. Coolio like to Coolio's credit. Coolio is like I expected better from you. Yeah, and I will say, like, even though I think the structure of the show is pedagogically empty, I think there were some moves that Coolio made that were really effective. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for all of his, like, weird Shaka Zulu stuff, you know, um, and, like, it was so funny because, like, it's it's actually hilarious. Like, while we're watching this show and Coolio is like, Shaka Zulu, Shaka Zulu. I am actually, I just started Zulu language class. So this is like another, <laughs> I mean, this is another element of the discussion, like, which, you know, for me is like really interesting in terms of kind of like thinking about race or thinking about culture um, is like the ways in which like Coolio is just like rattling off Shaka Zulu. And I looked it up. I was like, where did Coolio get this idea to like start using Shaka Zulu? And it's like not even really like an understanding of like Zulu culture or language or who, you know, like who the like who was ruling the king, you know, the king, you know, it's just like there's no kind of he's just basically like appropriating it as a cool phrase. Doesn't it have to do with like, um, oh gosh, Universal's, the Universal Zulu Nation and like the ways that um, like hip hop and so like Universal Zulu Nation was founded by Africa Bambata, who was like one of the original hip hop artists um, and was drawing on the like, um, like black nationalist movements of like the 70s right so like i i suspect that's where that would come from right yeah but what i'm saying is like and i'm glad that you just like explain that for listeners because <laughs> when i looked up like coolio's reasons 
he did not cite any of that. Like it was oh, not really? about like a pan African. Like he didn't talk about it. Like it's a pan African solidarity thing. He's like, yeah, just it's cool, man, to say it. it's all good. Like, and I, I think he probably knows the history a little bit, like more than he's letting on in the interview. But it right. just like burned me a little pu- that like publicly when asked about using Shaka Zulu that like he didn't really like talk about you know and then it's like there's this whole point at the end of that episode where like you know he's kind of like I guess you know not let them off the the hook but is like okay I hope you guys learned something and then he he like has BTS say Shaka Zulu like at the end like they're like from what I wrote down in my notes of the recap, he basically is like, Shaka Zulu, guys. And then they're all like, Shaka Zulu. Like, he basically, like, prompts them to say it. And it's kind of awkward because it's like, none of them know that. Like, right. This is another great example of failed indexicality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even after all of, like, whatever supposed training they're getting in hip-hop, I mean, the question is, like, aside from maybe, like, Ratman and Suga, do do they know Africa Bombada? Like... I no, did. of course not. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm like, have any of them heard Planet Rock? Like, I don't, you know, it's this question that I I'm mean, like. Talk less of the actual historical figure who is being indexed. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, like, there's like 17 different appropriations going on here. And you just, the end result is a bunch of Korean guys saying Shaka Zulu with no idea, like, what that means. Yeah, and I mean, it's just crazy to me, like, sitting here in South Africa, like, hearing them say Shaka Zulu with, like, zero context and, like, also, yeah, having just learned, like, just started learning Zulu as well. I just, just, it's Mm. like, it just sets off all these alarm bells that I think, like, most viewers, again, this is why we as, you know, like, who we are wanted to, like, talk about this stuff because it's like, yeah, I doubt, like, I just don't know how many, like, even BTS fans are familiar with you know, the Zulu nation or any of these, you know, any of this, any of this sort of stuff. And that, that's part of the thing is like, okay, if we talk about it, then you're watching it knowing that stuff, right? Like you have a completely different like way of understanding what's going on in the show as well. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the point too, is like, you know, that for me was something I wanted to talk about. And this is why we like have this podcast because I'm like, I needed someone to talk about it with. (laughs) And you are like, we can talk about this stuff, you know? Yeah, like, we can work through the indexical chains together. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I just said, like, oh, the end point is these Korean guys. But that's not true. The end point is the fans, right, who now have these, like, random words that mean something to them that's totally different from all of the other meanings that these words have, and they index something entirely different. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, this is why, you know, you were saying um, you were talking about chains of indexicality. So maybe that's like one last conceptual gift that we can give to whoever has been kind enough to listen to us blather on. Like, what are the what are what are chains of um, indexicality? So it isn't just like one thing indexing something. Right. So like we've said, you know, you can trace like the words Shaka Zulu. You can trace this from the beginning as like a freedom fighter in South Africa, right, who stood up to colonial oppression to the appropriation of that um, ethos of decolonizing um, by African-American hip hop artists such as Africa Bambata in the early days of hip hop to 
Coolio, who I assume has those associations, but maybe at this point, he's just so far from it, like, like temporally, that to him, it's just a cool thing that he says. It's just a, his catchphrase, right? And then to BTS, who's like, okay, this is a thing that Coolio is telling us to say, and it's related to hip hop, so we'll just say it. And then to the fans, right? So, so this, you know, this phrase or a name really has been changed in so many ways, and it's what it's indexing is all of those things at the same time. And so it's so it's like all those things are linked together, even though you may not necessarily know all of those indexes. Right, right. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way of explaining kind of like how indexicality can be in a chain. Like it isn't it isn't just a one to one kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, that's just a useful tool for thinking about a lot of stuff is to never just think like one thing represents another or one thing points to another. Like there's multiple things going on at once. Like and and part of uh, part of what I think is like useful about when you look at pop culture is looking at like, yeah, how how it is like mul- how you can multilaterally understand your pop culture. Connect with us on Twitter at second lead. That's two N D lead. Or email us at secondleadsyndrome, 2ND, leadsyndrome at gmail.com. You can find additional content and links to full audio and video mentioned on Second Lead Syndrome at secondleadsyndrome.wordpress.com. Our theme was composed by Kevin Vitz Wong. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com slash arsprosthetica. On the next episode of Second Lead Syndrome. Oh my God, yes. Yes. I mean, I think like anybody who's listened to that track knows exactly what we're talking about. And if you haven't listened to that track, oh, just brace yourself. I almost feel bad describing it in such detail because part of the joy of listening to it for the first time, if you don't have the spoilers, is just how how much of a mind like listening to that song is because it is so epic because it goes to places that even your excellent k-pop songs don't go as far as structure as far as you know the kind of ways in which the structure and the emotional builds sync and then the elements of the song and how they interweave them 